Welcome to The Nudge with Kia Eileen. With the tragic death of George Floyd, a spotlight has been cast on race relations in America. A seismic wave spread around the world with people recalling their painful and traumatic experiences in almost every facet of life. But is the Black experience the same everywhere? Today, my guest is transformational coach, Dr. Yvette Ankra, MBE. And we will be discussing race, identity as a Black British person, and also being a recovering overachiever. I know this will resonate with many of you listening. So grab a cup of something delicious and join us as we follow the nudge because you never know where it may lead. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Nudge with Kia Eileen. Today, I have a very special guest, transformational coach, Dr. Yvette Ankra, MBE. Yvette, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Um, uh, Yvette and I met over a year ago. Over a year mm-hmm, ago, yeah. wow, um, at an event up in Sheffield, and I was thinking about the people that I'd really like to speak to. It's one of those things like, who would you want to have at your dinner party list? <laughs> and Yvette was top of my list, so um, I'm very excited to, to be having a conversation with Yvette today, and I know that you're going to enjoy everything that she's saying, um, and the information that she's giving is going to be incredibly important and pertinent for where we are in the world today. Uh, But before we dive into the interview, um, I think most of you who listen to the podcast will know that I like to start by having three deep breaths to get us into heart resonance, to bring our hearts and our bodies, our minds and our souls into the space, to open up the space for free, free flowing communication. Um, so I'll, I'd invite you to just get comfortable and get comfortable at home as well. And, um, and let's just start by taking a deep breath in. And release. Beautiful. Thank you. Take a deep breath in. And release. And one more deep, deep breath in. And release. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. Mm. That feels good. That's really nice. We're in the space now. Um, So thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, your work is incredibly important. Um, and as I was saying before, really pertinent for where we are in our world today with events, um, things, different things that have happened in the events of, of America and actually the, the sort of the tide of emotion around the world. So you have a PhD in sociology, specializing in in identity, class, race, and belonging. And I love that last piece, belonging in particular. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at identity, you know, the the events of of George Floyd really were particular to, I guess, American Blacks, but it really has a lot of resonance for Black people around the world. Yeah. What would you say make up the components of identity for a Black British person? I mean, it's similar to um, in terms of being around the world, in terms of your cultural identity, um, associating with race, um, looking at the other things that have come into your world. It's also about the nation and how you feel about connecting to the nation and how the nation receives or doesn't receive you. Those all impact on your identity, how you feel you are and where you feel you belong. So looking at Britain particularly, whilst there have been black Britons in this country since Roman times, Mm. the biggest wave of migration stemmed when we had the um, Windrush coming over, um, SS Windrush, that's why it was named for the ship that came in um, the late 1940s, bringing Caribbean migrants here to work following World War um, II. So you have the largest amount of um, black migrants coming at that time. 
African migrants were here, but then they came in larger numbers later. So you've got migrants come from the Caribbean, then migrants come from the African continent itself. So you've got two waves of people bringing different cultural identities in to create that Black British space. And obviously, both of these groups of people stayed and had families and have second, third and fourth generations who are here. Yeah. So bearing in mind, as I said, there are happy people that have been here for a long time, even families um, that stayed after World War One. Mm. we've got that group here. We've got the majority coming later. So with that is certain cultural aspects, so food, music, mm. um, beliefs, those kind of identities. Um, so you've got now that mingling with being in Britain. Mm-hmm. So the ideas of British values come through as well. So in and that came from Africa were from British colonies. So British education, British beliefs, British systems were mm-hmm. part of their identity. So speaking the Queen's English. Yes. Right? So all English speaking. Um, mostly Christian coming from ch- you know church-based people. The ideas of what is um, ideas of behaviour, laws, systems, governance. They're all British laws and systems and governance. Mm. So those things were part of that identity when people were coming here. But then coming here and being made to feel not welcome, that you didn't belong, that you were othered, mm. and finding out that in this space you are something other than what you were. You now become black. Yeah. Because most people didn't, don't consider themselves black if they're in the space where everyone looks the same as them. Yeah, That's something that happens when you move spaces. But it's what black means in that context. And in that context, black didn't mean something good. Mm-hmm. It meant something that was lower and less than. So part of that process of creating identity was also finding an identity for yourself in a space where you are told you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Finding an identity in a space where you are othered and you consider the other, and that that identity they are given is one that's quite negative. And the whole ideas of you know race and constructs of race, they they are constructs. They're constructed. Yes. So it started off with biological differences. The idea that there's differences in terms of intelligence, in terms of all those things. Then it moved to actually it's cultural differences. So culturally different that we can't possibly, you know, relate. So they found another way, they is in the Western lens, found another way to see difference. And then now as you've moved later on, you've got religion coming in with Islamophobia and other things that come in with difference. So you've got all of these different, I sort of had to brush over sort of his history to understand, because particularly if you've got Americans who don't understand the historical context of here, it's one of colonialism, it's one of people coming by invitation yes, and almost this idea that after you've been invited that you're going to go home <laughs> and disappear. It didn't work that way, yes. you know. So it was invitation. It was being asked to come to help rebuild. And then suddenly people realising that they're here and here on a more permanent basis and don't go home and then create new generations. And those new generations then find that they're discriminated against within education, within um, workplaces within so many things. Um, accommodation was one of the first issues. People couldn't find people to rent them homes. Um, they came with jobs a lot of the time, but then couldn't get homes. So you had you had all this stuff happening. Yeah. And the next level was for people who's now these are the children who are here. They believe quite rightly they're born here, they're educated here, they're invested here, they're part of this country. But there's a book that was written called There Ain't No Black in Union Jack, which is oh. by Paul Gilroy. Okay. So the whole idea that, that, you know, where do black people belong yes. in this country? Yes. So the fight then goes on to reclaim a space here. So actually we're here, we've invested, we're engaged, but part of the society, there is black in Union Jack because we're here. And we mm. need, you know, going anywhere. And to find a space to claim, so that's where you get the black politics coming in, mm-hmm. claiming um, a space, race politics coming in, people saying, you know, multiculturalism, all of these different things stem from this desire 
to mm. show that we're actually here, we're part of it, we're born here, we're invested. For some people, they're fourth generation here. They've never been back home. There isn't a back home. They're four <laughs> generations here. This, this is this, this is, their, is home. their home. This is their home. This is their home. <laughs> being told that you 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 know you don't belong and all of those things. But then we've got a structure in society that still feeds that, that still um, continues that. So we still have higher rates of incarceration. We still mm. have um, higher rates of the section under the Mental Health Act. We still have um, black women dying in, um, dying in childbirth. childbirth yeah. We still have, yeah, you know, it happens here. These, these are the same things that your, your listeners in the States will resonate with because it's the same thing that's happening here. Except our population is tiny in the respect to the mm. American population. Mm. Black British population is about 7 million people. There's not oh, many of us. Okay. We're very small in terms of, of the scope. But we are overrepresented in the yeah. prison system. We are overrepresented yes. in deaths from COVID at the moment. Yes. You know, we're overrepresented in so many spaces in the poverty metrics, in lower, you know, what happens with education. Yes. So clearly there's other stuff at play here. So finding the identity is, you know, looking at positively towards finding a space where being black is welcomed, being positively kind of embraced. You saw the, the movements come in, the black power movements mm. in the States. They were reflected here, mm. getting black politicians. You know, we recently had um, Diane Abbott celebrate 33 years of yes. being an MP. She was the first black female politician. We're talking in my lifetime all these firsts have happened and continue to happen. So the identity is how you're treated by the nation, mm. how you belong, how you're from your culture, from your um, ethnic background, how you view race. And it's not just how you perceive yourself, it's how you're also perceived by others. Yes. So that, that's what happens in the construction of identity. And Britain's unique with, because of our history and what's happened. And, and I think that's an, interest, that's an interesting point, you know, how you perceive yourself and how you're perceived by others. You know, in a lot of my discussions, we've been talking about having to wear two hats or have two or three separate identities, depending on the group that you're with. So you end up feeling a little bit sort of culturally schizophrenic because you have to be, you know, one way to this group and one way to another. And it lead, lends itself to this feeling of, you know, not really feeling that you fit in anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say with that, that's kind of, that's been talked about by Dubois talked about mm. it, Fallon talked about mm. it in their work, the double consciousness, that whole idea of being in, you know, one space because you're in somewhere that's not a space where you belong or fit, you're seeing yourself with this strange duality. Yes. And this, this mask wearing, it's been talked about quite a lot, particularly in in certain environments, thinking of the corporate spaces that mm. people find themselves in, mm. there's almost this, we have to put this mask on, smile, and behave in a certain way. Yes. And I think over the years that's lessened, and I think right now is the time that that will hopefully change for good. So there's no desire to wear that mask, no desire to have to feel that if you don't do X, Y, Z, behave in X, Y, Z way, look xyz way that's right you don't fit in and i think that is changing more now yes than ever i mean it's it's interesting isn't it i can remember when i you know maybe about maybe if i'm going back about seven or eight years ago um i asked my boss I actually asked my boss and he was, he was a black man at the time. And I worked with a lot of, you know, um, the top 500 companies. I would go in and, and do work with them. I said, I really want to wear my hair and braids. I really want to wear my hair and braids. I'm going on holiday in a few weeks time. Do you think it's going to be okay if I do that? I mean, I'm having a conversation as a grown woman saying, can I wear my hair this way? Will it be accepted? And he kind of looks at me and said, yeah, like, why not? But it was a real consideration that I had to think. And this is just eight years ago. Um, so, yeah. But those things are still there. Those <laughs> still ideas of um, Western ideas of beauty, of, yes. of what it means and what professional looks like. Mm. Um, and what that means. So I um, stopped wearing, I, I, I've never really done lots of weaves 
in the wigs because I just don't really get on with them. But I stopped relaxing my hair mm-hmm. over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I wore lots of braids and did some. But then when I took my hair out, I was working in a corporate environment. And my mother was the one that was concerned yes. of what happened when I went to work with an, an afro, basically. Yes. And nothing happened. <laughs> nothing yeah. happened. My husband was like, oh, your hair's amazing. So it became kind of like, oh, my gosh. And then I'd wear head wraps or whatever else. And I said to my mother, other cultures are allowed to wear various coverings and it's accepted and it's okay. What's wrong with my hair that grows out of my head? Yes. That's the question, right? What's wrong with our hair? It grows naturally out of our hair, out of our head. So I've had that as a student going for a job, um, a well-known department store. It was a makeup counter thing. I was expected to wear a full face of makeup every day, contact lenses instead of glasses, and my hair had to be done in a certain way. I didn't accept the job. And this was 25 plus years ago. Wow. Wow. But it still happens. I saw a post even two days ago where someone was saying, would you work with a coach or work with somebody who had their hair in this particular way? And most of the people said, well, yeah, why not? But because it had been a consideration because you'd gone for something and they said you'd have to change your hair. Amazing. This was was two days ago. Oh my gosh. Oh, that actually, that actually made my stomach just turn just a little bit. I mean, you know, how are people meant to feel. I was, I was speaking at a Black Lives Matter um, rally yesterday, and there were so many stories about, you know, young people, young Black men going on interviews, getting dressed up in their suits, feeling very good about themselves. And one, one young man in particular uh, decided not to ride the bus home. He gave his change to a homeless person to have some food. So he walked home, got accosted by the police and beaten up. And he just looked at his sister when he got home and said, you know, we don't belong anywhere. We don't belong anywhere. And so what happens um, in your experience or in your training have you seen? What happens when people start to really lose that sense of belonging? What happens to them or, and to future generations? How does that get passed down, that, that lack of sense of belonging? It's trauma. Mm. It is trauma. And... You know, my particular research focused on second generation Ghanaians. I was interested in their identity. I was interested in their particularly looking at class constructs as well. Mm. So I had a very particular view for the, for, the, for the thesis. But that whole idea of not belonging anywhere, um, for the second generation, it's, well, some felt at home in their parents' country of origin. Mm. Some didn't. Mm. And some felt, well, actually, I go there and they don't consider me as part of the culture. And I'm here and I'm not considered part of the culture either. And it's a feeling of loss, a feeling of where do I belong? There is no space for me. But what some did was say, well, actually, I'm going to create my own space, Mm. a space where I do belong. And that's done through creating networks for themselves, creating other spaces, which are... um, called the third space it's an in-between space it's where they create their own sense of belonging their own attachments they redefine what belonging is for them because otherwise they're untethered to anything that's that's incredible yeah Uh, you know and creating your own space is so important um you know my first ever trip to the uk um i came over a lot of years ago, back in 1989. And um, my friend and I were walking down the street and we had our university clothes on and our sweatshirts and our sneakers and our hats. And these guys kind of yelled at us across the road and said, come here. And they wanted to talk to us. And so we went and we hung out with them. And one of the first things they said was, "Um, what's it like to be American? And we kind of looked at them. So what do you mean? Say, well, what's it like to be American? And and we kind of looked at each other and we said, Well, we're we're black. And they said, No, you're American. And we kept saying, No, we're black. And they said, No, you're American. And it it actually took my breath away because I had never in my life, and I was 20 at the time, um, I'd never in my life been called American. All I'd ever been called and known 
was basically by my color, the way I looked, not my culture. Mm-hmm. And so um, Britain for me has always represented this sense of freedom as a black person culturally. And I found that kind of, I was able to kind of start to define mm-hmm. my own sense of belonging in this space. And I think it's why I always, I was always determined to come back here and live. Um, and I, so I've never really kind of thought of it that way in, in that, you know, I was developing my own sense of belonging in a third space because I was like, well, I don't really belong there. I'm not sure where I belong. So I'm going to create it here. Um, and that's really powerful. That was really powerful for me. So that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful point that you've just made. Thank you for that. Incredible. So as we're talking about identity, um, is there such a thing as white identity? Well, if there's black identity, there is white identity. Yes. Really. Yes. Neither, you know, technically, um, both of the things technically are constructs. So, Mm. but what you've had in this is, it's almost like defining, if there's always this definition of, B-A-M-E, which kind of does irritate so many people, the whole idea of fame. It's just this weird word that doesn't make sense. And <laughs> this black and minority ethnic, right, assumes that white isn't an ethnicity. Mm. But the very nature, if there's other ethnicities, then white therefore must be an ethnicity. Therefore, yes. if you've got black identity, you must have white identity, right? right? Yes. But the difference is that, I mean, white identity is a whole lot of scholarship on on that and it's not an area that I focus on mm. but the difference is in terms of when I've been looking at my work is that white identity they get to define how they are by wherever they want to be so mm. they can say I'm Irish I'm Russian I'm whatever else and they can use that and it's accepted yes that they can have these alternative identities yes. and they can be seen in other ways the difference is it's black identity it's almost like this homogenous, uniform group of people who have nothing else that's part of their world apart from that. Yes. <laughs> that's the difference between the two mm. in terms of what's, what's um, noticed and allowed and what isn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, black woman speaking to another black woman, black American woman, black British, African descent, Ghanaian, different history, different background, different things that I know culturally different yeah. way you know but that's not you know that gets taken away it's yes. that and we don't have the same experience in terms of what it's like to be black women exactly because of your you know your American upbringing and my British one yeah but that's not really taken into consideration in that no. respect yeah we just <laughs> we just get one together yeah yeah. 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 So, and it's not about um, separation or trying to say we need to be separate, but understanding that we all come from different perspectives and have different experiences. And my black experience will probably be different from your black experience because of where, where and how we've grown up. I mean, yes. from class, education, everything else, we'd also again look at maybe different experiences of what what has happened and what didn't happen in our lives. Hmm. That's a very good point um, because we are all different. We all have incredibly different experiences. I mean, even, you know, black people in America, you know, if I'm from, I'm from Philadelphia, but I could be talking to someone from the South or someone from the West and we're all going to have totally different experiences based on where we live. America's a really big country and, and, you know, our backgrounds are going to be different. So, um, you know, we have a myriad of experiences and that needs to be appreciated as well. So... Uh, if we can just talk, uh, touch on a little bit. So with the tragic events of George Floyd, we had the protests mm-hmm. beginning in America and it seemed to really spread mm-hmm. like wildfire. There have been numerous mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. Um, incidents with other black men and black women, um, you know, perishing mm-hmm. in custody and poli- police custody. But this this event in particular seemed to really grab everyone and I mean everyone worldwide why do you think that is you know why this particular incident why now I think to be honest the fact that we're on lockdown and COVID has something to do with it as well Mm. particularly because people are at home Mm -hmm. people are aware people have um not everybody because people are working not you know not everybody's at home and sequestered but 
the vast majority of people are around and available and seeing things. And also this has been a very weird and strange time for reflection and introspection and lots of things. So people are in a different space, I think, um, now compared to every other time. I mean, even just in the last, what, four or five weeks, we've had Armand Avery, Brianna Taylor. We had... Um, I I'm apologising for forgetting his name. Another uh, guy that died just uh, two weeks, I think, to George Floyd and yes. in the States. This is America. Yes. You know, plus the, the incident in, in Central Park. So you had a, a sort of a run-up of incidents hmm. and then this one mm-hmm. where, you know, it was so clear that there was nothing else happening apart from you have heard commentators trying to talk about his previous background in that moment in that instance he was a man who'd been detained who was not fighting who should have just been put in the car and taken to the station if that was what was necessary what happens after that no one can say that's justice yeah no one can see that and see how in any way that's justice and that is i think the difference that's happened now it was so clear to Mm. see even though, I mean, we've had this with so many others, even with Eric Garner, and it was clear to see then. It was it's clear, clear to see, to see on so many others, on so many others. But for some reason, at this time, people were able to understand what they were seeing, perhaps. Maybe before they didn't understand what they were seeing. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't the clarity that they needed. So whatever happened, this was the time that they paid attention. Yeah. It's nothing new. It's, you know, it's not a fight that hasn't happened before within the community. Protests have happened before. You know, name name a city that hasn't seen a protest. If you go to the UK, if you look at the history here, we've had riots and race-related riots since World War II times and going further on. Mm-hmm. More happens later, post-World War II, but we've had incidences throughout, you know, the UK's history as well. Mm-hmm. America's history, it hasn't changed. For some reason right now, this particular yeah. incident with George Floyd acted as a catalyst, acted as a wake-up call. I've got my, my spiritual intuitive crew they're saying, you know, this is a time, it's a different energy, this is a very different time, um, things are aligned in a different way. We haven't had this for a long time. The last time we had this kind of energy was the birth of the civil rights movement, you know, That's when you right. had the American Civil War. These are, these are the times we've That's had this right. level of, if you're looking energetically, what's going on, that. If you're looking at it from another space, it's, I think it's, you know, people are available, aware, introspective, reflective, Mm. and operating from a different space than they were every other time we've had this happen. Uh, And and it's interesting, you know, kind of looking at it, I I really thought about this. I was like, what is it now? And, and, And much like you just said, I thought to myself, it's something about the level of distraction, right? We, we have far less distraction now because we are in the midst of this pandemic. We're not commuting to work. We're working from home. We're, we're together. We've, you know, we're not watching sports. We're not going to the pub. You know, we've got this really kind of concentrated environment where now mm-hmm. this explosive thing happens and you can't escape it. There's just no way of escaping it. So you have to face it. And we are in the space of, as you said, introspection and really looking within and saying, you know, where are we going next? And a lot of, a lot of the focus, I think, has been around our health um, with coronavirus and how can we be healthy and how can we boost our immune systems and all of that. And then to see someone having their life taken away. And as you said, in a space where it's not just, I think, really kind of hit people. And and I love that you touched. You've also touched on the energetics, and, and I have seen loads of things about energetically. Where are we? And I saw something the other day that said um, the last time we were in this space of energy, how the planets are aligning, and all of this other stuff. Um, the Rodney King events happened in another space. Um, the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, in mm-hmm. another space, the birth of civil rights movement. So we're in this time of deep transition. 
And so yeah. we are in this incredible, and you can feel it, right? We can feel those of us who work with energy understand that we are in yeah. incredibly potent right now. So where do we go from here? right? Where do we go from here with, we have this kind of launch pad. For me, it feels like to kind of come to some kind of common ground and common understanding about who we are as human beings, as we are in the natural world. Where do we go from here? I think this is the time for true collaboration mm-hmm. and true connectivity. And I say true because it's not like there hasn't been collaboration and connection before, but it, it's for a purpose it's to move forward and one of the things that I'm very conscious of is as you said all of this comes in and it comes into your system and those images trigger and they can be you know giving you almost PTSD like symptoms Mm -hmm. within your system so it's protecting your body and your energy and protecting your peace Mm-hmm. because there's so much emotion and I found that I personally that I became unwell with all of this going on with all of the the the, the anger the frustration the just you know the pain the seeing all of this because what people um don't well I'll say what people let's be clear on this what white people may not understand is that when you see those images the reason it triggers is because that's your uncle, that's your brother, that's your father, that's your, you know, your partner, that's your child, that's you. That's what it does. Yes. And that idea of, um, you know, your family member could have just gone to the store to collect something and doesn't come home because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why those those things happen, and that's why that triggers. That's why it triggers worldwide. It triggers worldwide because it's that it doesn't. You know, if you are treating people like that because of who they are, it affects all those that are like them. Yes, you know. But protecting your energy is really important right now because you cannot mobilize from a space of depletion. From a space of lack, <laughs> from a space of exhaustion, and believe me, this is tiring. You know, if you're going to do this, you need to be resilient. You need to be strong in yourself. You need to manage your energy because when you're in that space, you are not productive. You are not moving. You're just in that space. So, what happens next is protecting your peace, building your resilience, and connecting with others that will make change happen. You know, that's that's the space that I'm operating from. So I may not post something every day. I may not tweet something. I may not share something every day. I wake up like every day. <laughs> that, that never changed. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't, it, you know, it doesn't require me to necessarily, you know, do that on a, on a platform every day. Yeah. But what I have always done, because I've been an activist since I was about 14 years old, the first time someone called me the N-word, I was six. Mm. so you know I've been an activist for a long time I don't have to shout about things Mm. it's about what I do it's about the actions yes if I don't like something I seek to change it Mm. it's like the Angela Davis quote you know she's changing the things she can no longer accept that's right that's where you go that's right you make the change happen you do it in whichever way works for you. So whether it's through economics, through sorting out projects, through connections, through empowering people within your workplace, through having dialogue, it doesn't mean you have to engage in every single negative conversation that comes up on your social media feed. It, you know, it means that you choose what you wish to do, how you wish to do it from the space of resilience, strength and self-care. That is, because otherwise you can't, you can't move. That is so important. That is so, so important. Um, that was actually part of my talk yesterday. Um, I was sort of reflecting Dr. Joyce DeGroy's work where she talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome, um, where mm-hmm. there is, you know, scientific evidence that, you know, generationally we can pass down things like dreams and fears. We can also pass down trauma. And, you know, I was sort of talking about the best way as just as you've said, the best way that we, what we can do as we move forward is to how is to protect our own energy, to heal those spaces Mm -hmm. that where we feel triggered and to not get involved in those negative conversations. Because if we're coming from that 
you know, coming to the situation from a space of, as you said, lack or sorrow or anger, we're not going to be productive. We're not going to be our most creative selves. And we're certainly not going to be good collaborators um, in that space. You know, those of us who work with energy understand what that's like. So that's, absu- that's absolutely perfect. And so a lot of your work is around deep self-care, deep self-care. How did you come to that? Have you had personal experiences where you have needed to take a step back and really look after yourself? How did you come to, ha ha? Oh, yes. Here's the rub. Um, so, I mean, I have experienced burnout. Mm. several times I was diagnosed with a condition called fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. which if you don't know what it is is a very painful condition Mm. which um, leaves you fatigued has muscle pain affects your cognition Mm. Um, so as an example I was in the middle of my PhD when I got really ill and I had to learn to read again I couldn't focus and read a page of my own writing my eyes wouldn't focus on it. I would skip over it. It would take me so long just to, to absorb any information. And this is stuff I'd written myself. Um, you know, it would impact some days I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't play with my child. Um, yeah. So I know what happens when you push a body mm-hmm. and you don't listen to it. Mm-hmm. And my body was talking to me politely, whispering, and I was ignoring her. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of told me to sit down, shut up, and <laughs> listen. And uh, now, if I even hear a slight whisper, it's like, Kate heard you, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm good. Um, and that's why, you know, taking care of yourself is incredibly important mm. because if you're not thriving, nothing else will happen. Mm-hmm. It's got to start, and everything starts inside out from the inside out. You mm-hmm. cannot affect anything out there unless you sort out what's in here first. Amazing. And that, that's my kind of journey. So, you know, I kind of um, was working in the corporate world and was in a space where outwardly it looked good. And there's a lot of people that might have that, where outwardly it looks good. You've got your yeah. job, you've got your title. Tick, you're doing tick, your tick. Things, <laughs> you know, everyone thinks you're amazing. And you're crying in the toilets and you're going home and you're exhausted and you work 12 hour days mm-hmm. and you are unfulfilled and your spirit hurts when you walk into that room. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that feeling when you walk into a space and it's that energy out of you. Someone has just taken you yeah. and the husk of you yeah. is now walking around there yeah. and you're pretending. Yes. So, and that would take a toll on you physically, mm. mentally. And it did. Mm-hmm. And I quit that job. And I was lying in my grandmother's house in Ghana thinking, oh, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> what have I done? Yeah. Um, but what I did, I kept, that was a recur- recurring pattern. I'd then move on to something else and I'd move on to something else, but I didn't fix me. Mm. So I went everywhere with me and wondered why I was getting the same results. Yes. So, yes. so you know, this, this might resonate with some of your listeners, but it's, <laughs> yes. it's, um, uh, it's, it's that kind of thing. So yeah. through that experience, through finally getting to the point of another hospital admission, another procedure I did not need mm. all due to this condition, something had to change. Mm-hmm. And it was a long period of time. It was a long journey and it was working from, battling against something to kind of working with it to then not needing it. So mm-hmm. I am pain-free, have no issues. Um, you know, two years ago, having all the stuff that's happened, I'd have probably been in my bed and not moved. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that would have been my reality because just yeah. the stress of it would just turn my body just, my body says, oh, actually, that's it. You can't do it. Just shut down and lie down. That's not, that's not what's happening. I'm actually feeling quite well, to be honest. Yes. Um, yeah. And quite energized um, because I learned how to care for myself. Yeah. I learned how to honor myself. I learned to listen to my body and connect mind and body together again because they were very separate entities. Mm-hmm. And I learned those tools and techniques and invested in my time and energy in doing it and doing the work. And that's the kind of work I teach as well. Amazing. Amazing. And and so much of that resonates with me personally, very similar experiences, you know, 
corporate job, you know, it all looks good on paper, check, check, check. And, you know, having chest pains, driving home in the car, that kind of thing, because I'm having panic Mm -hmm. attacks. Um, And that's eventually how I ended up doing this work, much like you. I said, I have to do something. I have to fix myself here. You know, I have, there's something not right inside. And as you were talking, Mm -hmm. I can remember that feeling of being like a feeling like a husk everything's been sucked out from the inside and I'm walking around and it looks okay, but really it's not. Um, And so what were some of the things or some of the strategies and techniques that you used for yourself? Do you have a daily routine or something that you, that's your go-to or what did you do for yourself? I think for me, one of the biggest things, and I'll always say this was creating a gratitude practice. Mm. And I would sort of do it off and on and I made a commitment to truly do that gratitude practice and invest in my time every single day without fail mm. to find something I'm grateful for. It doesn't matter how my day has gone. It doesn't matter what the what's happened. And it's, you know, it truly shifts and changes your perspective. So it's, you know, whilst I use things like I'm an NLP practitioner, I'm a performance coach, I'm also a geek and into neuroscience and psychology, right? So I, I'm, I'm interested in all of it. So I always love to research techniques that have scientific proven as well as, I mean, you know, we'll talk about NLP another time, but <laughs> yes. there, are definite, there are definite things that have been proven. And with gratitude, even if you were to say you were thankful for something someone's done, you don't even have to tell them. You can write it in a letter and the impact is the same on your body. The yes. impact is the same on your brain. Even months later, your brain still retains a change because you've been giving thanks. So when situations happen, you respond differently. You respond from a completely different space. And I had a car crash that happened and um, my son was in the car and I was like, okay, so we got smacked into by a lorry. It was pouring with rain and it was one of those like, okay. But you know what? My car was still drivable. My child was fine. He wasn't scared or shaken. He was totally fine with it. Um, it got sorted out. No one was injured. You know, so whereas before, my response may have not been that yes, as my yes. response. Yes. But yes. my response was, you know, okay, well, these are all the things. And it happened not far from my house. So I was, I was close to home. So all of those kind of parameters, it's like, well, and then from it, we actually got some positive stuff when we sorted out the insurance. It actually meant that I had some money to do some other stuff. So, hey, it turned out okay. In the so end. much to be grateful for in that, right? Exactly. So much to be grateful for, yeah. But if you haven't got that as a practice and you don't think in that way, mm. it could have been, how dare they hit my car? This mm-hmm. happened, that happened, this is happening to me. This is, you know, why is my life always like this? You know, the, a completely different way of perceiving the yes. same situation. Yes. It also meant that I was incredibly calm. I was annoyed, but I was incredibly calm. <laughs> oh, that helps. You know, you're allowed to be angry, right? <laughs> Your cars are not so pretty anymore. Um, but it was it was a case of, you know, the immediate things that were important to me. My son, he was mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. First thing, if he, you know, and if he'd, and it, he was, maybe because I was calm, he was amazingly calm. He, yeah. you know, he was completely fine. If he'd been completely in tears or whatever else, you know, again, I'd still have to be in calm mode to manage his emotions yeah. as well. It's amazing that, yeah, yeah. The, it's amazing the difference it can make by the energy that you bring to something. I mean, much like you, even before I put my feet on the floor in the morning, I wake up and I instantly think of three things to be grateful for, even before I put my feet on the floor and it changes my day. And, I, and sometimes if I forget, I notice that my day is different um so you know I have to make sure I you know I commit to to doing that it's incredibly I feel that I agree it's incredibly important um I wanted to also touch on some on something else that you mentioned um in reading through uh some research I was doing for uh, on you it said that you are a recovering <laughs> overachiever of a covering yep. over <laughs> overachiever, and you said um, yeah. I, I, it's the it's the thing that I've known my entire life. I never learned any other way of being. So where do you think that no. comes from? 
It's a mix of family and environment. Mm. So I've, I was always driven, even as a child, I was driven. Um, and it's funny, I was speaking to one of my oldest friends out there. She goes, you haven't really changed that much. There's a lot of things that have been very consistent mm-hmm. in certain things I want to do. So that kind of, I mean, my family were very much education, education, education. Mm. But they were kind of happy, you know, if you get, get your degree, after that, you know, do, do, as you, do as you please. But the idea is that you will get an education, you will yeah. be educated, you will definitely go to university. And after that, but that's, that's the minimum that yeah. we expect of you. Yeah. The minimum of, you know, getting grades and, um, you know, if I had a, a report card, my report card was always, you know, A to A to A to B to B to B to C. You know, I got a D, my mother grounded me for whole <laughs> Right, so, you know, it was the expectation of it was there, yes, and I internalized that myself. But also, mm-hmm. I grew up on on a council estate in North London. Mm-hmm. So, for your American viewers, it's probably I don't know the projects would be the, maybe we'd say the projects, yeah. Thing. I don't, yeah. I, I, yeah, probably. So yeah. you can see I know very little about America, right? <laughs> <laughs> But so it was a council estate. I mean, when we moved there, it was very working class. Everybody working thing. Um, everybody had were jobs, but mostly blue collar workers. It was families, and you know, it wasn't necessarily high aspiration in terms of the environment. My family had a different view on that. So my family's view was high aspiration. Doesn't matter where you are, it's high yeah, aspiration, high aspiration. Right. And um, there was lots of things that I saw. Um, and kind of didn't engage in, but you kind of were aware of what's going on and around you. And I didn't want that to be my future. My family had never expected that to be for any of us or mm. expected to stay as long as they did there. So that was part of it about achieving and moving. Mm. And I'm recovering <laughs> from it because there's nothing else I need to prove. Mm. You know, there's what else do I need to do and who for? I don't need to burn myself out. I don't need to grind myself into the ground. I still have goals. I still wish to achieve, but I do not do it from that energy. Mm. It's very tiring. <laughs> it's very tiring. Yeah. Um, and that's why. So, you know, will I do another PhD? Possibly. <laughs> I haven't told the husband that yet. But, would you? Would you? you know, <laughs> I love that. I was originally going to do I was originally going to do this one when I retired and I brought it forward. Um, so, yeah, so there is a possibility I might do another one. Yes. I love that. Um, I love that for our, for our listeners. We were, we were, we were discussing your PhD before we started and um, this sort of, <laughs> you were sort of saying, you know, we were, we, we were not getting along. The PhD and I were not getting along. I love the, I love the idea now that you're going to do another one. I love this. <laughs> I absolutely love this. It's a, diff- it's a different relationship. Like as I was, as I was describing, <laughs> the relationship became toxic. And um, you know, as I said, if, if if it was a guy I was dating, it was lose my number. Don't call me. Just forget I was there. That's so this it. is it's a chance to have a new relationship with somebody and and create something different. It doesn't have to end that way. <laughs> and you know, and this is now going to be on your terms. You know, on your terms, uh, you can start this new relationship and mm-hmm. still achieving, but you know, based on how you want to approach this. So in 2017, you were recognised by the Queen for your work with women. Uh, and you received an MBE. And from my American listeners, it's the member of the Order of the British Empire, which really kind of ex- uh, recognizes excellence in a particular area. And your area is around women. Yeah. And so, you know, talk to me a little bit about, because I know this really centers in your work, you know, this sense of overachieving as women in business. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the kind of we have to go that extra mile. And, and how does that message feed into the work that you do with women? I think, I mean, it happens in so many ways. And this is when you get like the imposter syndrome coming mm-hmm. up as well, mm-hmm. particularly felt by high achievers. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole MBE thing, I wasn't even going, that's not something that I went for. That was something somebody nominated me for. And it was just a nice to have, but it was because I was campaigning to get more support for women in business. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that campaign at the same time as doing the PhD, launching a business and 
getting really ill. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but I felt it was important to me. I was passionate about it. And I, you know, I kept seeing all these women who weren't being given the opportunities that they could have been given mm-hmm. because they weren't at the tables. No one was discussing whether it was important because they weren't there. And when I talk about women, I talk all women. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, representation across the board and realising that, you know, people like women, you know, women weren't getting loans if they wanted them. Women have different issues with getting credit. Women have different issues with caring responsibilities. So you build your business and you drop out because you're looking after elderly parents. You've got children or even grandchildren suddenly come up and then you go look after those too. And all of those pressures are put on women. And I think now, more so in my generation, we're expected to be amazing at everything. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. You're not going to be someone that's going to give. You can be amazing at something, but not all the things at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we do that to ourselves. We put that pressure on ourselves. Um, it might start from the parent. It might start from, you know, the job. But then you work, go to that job and it's like, well, I've got to be better than. And as a black woman, I feel that even more so because we were told you had to be even more because you're not just female, you're also black and female. That's you know, right. Double whammy. That's right. So, you know, that pressure of when you are in a workplace or when you are doing something, having to overachieve, having to show up, having to be there early, having to stay late, having to show your worth all the time mm-hmm. somebody who may never value it. Yes. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. Um but yeah, we do put that on ourselves. We do bring that in. Or it shows up in other ways where we don't take risks. We don't stand up. We don't use our voice. We don't go for that job. We don't go for that promotion. We allow other people to take our ideas and pass them off as, our, as their own. It shows up in, in, in that yeah. where we, you know, we've done work, but then yeah. we, don't, we don't show up. We don't show so up. it happens in, in, in both those ways. And I think particularly that desire to be and do all to feel that you have to be and do all. There's some some drive that you have to be and do all. Mm-hmm. You can still do things, but do it differently. Do it differently. Do it differently. Do And don't do it alone. Mm. That's the biggest thing. You do not need to do it alone. That's a huge message, right? Because as you said, you know, for a lot of women, we do have to kind of wear all of those different hats and be a lot of things to a lot of different people. So we sometimes feel like we have to do it alone or we can't ask for help. So when you're working with your clients and they come to you and they have this feeling that they have to do it all or they have to be better than, how do you bring them back into balance? I always start by asking one question. What mm. is it that you really want? Mm. You know, what is it? you really want not everybody else you because we often live somebody else's story right so start by thinking what's your story not your mum's story not your dad's story not the story of your best mate that said actually because you're really good at this you should just do do that but you know but but what if they don't know and my in my experience in working with clients sometimes they don't even know Right. They've been looking, they've been living someone else's story for so long that they don't really have any idea. You know what the Well that's where we start from. We start mm-hmm. finding start finding their story, start getting them to explore the things they want, what's like what are you passionate about? What really makes your heart sing? Mm-hmm. What you know, if you had to do it at one o'clock in the morning, what is it you want to do? And if none of the things you're doing right now answer that, that's a start. <laughs> right. That's it, right? <laughs> that's that's the start, you know. That's the start. And it's that kind of, you know, and I use kind of meditation techniques. I use trance work. I use different things because your conscious often gets in the way mm-hmm. because you say what you believe that people want to hear. And once you kind of get into that space, people often are really surprised at what comes out. And they're like, oh, you know, because it's the first time they've ever truly allowed that part of themselves out. Mm. And, you know, once it's free, <laughs> now what? Now let's, let's, you, let's do you, something. You can't put it back in the box then. <laughs> let's do something. But sometimes even just asking that question, what do you really want? Mm. I've had people cry mm. because they've never asked themselves what they want. Mm. Particularly. 
I found mothers mm. and married women have this because it's usually they will put husband first, put children first. Mm. And at the bottom somewhere, possibly, if they've got five minutes, it might be them. Mm. You know, so it's about empowering yourself and empowering those around you. And sometimes it's even having the confidence to have the conversation. So it might be that we work on being able to ask for that help. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not that their partners are, uh, are awful or anything like that, but they've also never asked. And as soon as some of that happens, all the other things, if you're domestic, if you've got a partner that's not there, doesn't support you, you're going to find it incredibly difficult if you're building a business or trying to do something. You cannot do it without support. Mm. So if it's not from there, you need to get support from somewhere. But it's usually starting from there. And it's just having that conversation of, do you know what? This is what I need. And usually the answer is, oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I love that. So what do you really want? This is what I need. And then starting to ask for help and finding support, right? We don't have to do these things alone. How do you think yeah. how do you think COVID has changed or reshaped the way um, women who are in business, especially women who run their own business? Let's say there's, you know, um, they're they're running their own business, they're a solo, they're self-employed, you know, they're a solo uh, business owner. How has COVID sort of changed and reshaped the way that they do business? I think it's been quite varied. Mm. And I think it does depend on if they have children and the age of their children. Mm-hmm. Because, and there's already been research into this, mm-hmm. women immediately go into primary caregiver mode. So if they are at home, the child, more than often less, or children will go to their mother for support and help. She's more likely to drop what she's doing to help them with their homework or to help them with schoolwork. Um, and irrespective of what the partners earn, even if the, the, the man is not working, if it's a heterosexual couple with children, it's falling on the woman. Yeah. That's the research is already showing that. Yeah. It's you know, we're already seeing particularly a lot of women have part-time work. They're now if they are at home, they've lost that mm-hmm. and they've lost the ability to earn, they've lost the ability to income, even with those who are self-employed. Because then if the partner earns more, his work is being prioritised. So I actually think there's going to be a huge step back for a lot of women Mm. um, with this. As I said, it does depend because I've seen people whose businesses have grown, who have, um, you know, you know, done that pivoting that everyone's talking about, who've moved forward in different ways, and who are um, engaged in different, mm-hmm. but the ones that I've seen do that do not have um, primary age children. And I think that's 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 key. I mean, um, my my son, my, my I call him my share son, is he's eighteen now, and it's a totally different um, sort of um, way that we're where we are in the family in comparison to some of my friends who have much, much younger children, you know, six or eight years old, um, it, it has been a very different experience, you know, in my business versus their business. So I think that's true. How do we support women who have had to take a step back, who may have lost their income or lost their, um, lost the momentum in their business because of COVID? How do we support them coming out of this? I think this, this is where the connectivity and collaboration comes in. Mm. It's the networking. So I've been doing networking. I've been giving lots of free talks. I've got free resources on my website for people's mental health and well-being. Um, you know, most of the stuff I've done has been free. I have very, you know, low-cost workshops as well coming up. Um, it's those that have lost. There's no point saying, you know, invest in this if there's nothing to invest. Yeah. It's about support, confidence, network, connections. Mm. And if you're a woman in that space, start speaking to people. Start reaching out. If you haven't done it already, now is the time to do that, mm-hmm. to make those connections, people that you 
maybe I've always wanted to speak to and haven't, start, you know, send somebody a message, get jump on the call and see what you could maybe do together, see how you could collaborate to get through this. It might be a case of pooling resources or pooling skills to create something new. Brilliant. There's, you know, there's different ways of doing that. Some things are on pause. So, for example, if you're in a beauty industry, et cetera, you're on pause until it can open up again. You might be incredibly busy when you open up again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's probably if you haven't got partnerships or people you can pass work to or ways, now's a way of maybe creating an alliance with people if you're in that particular game. Coaches, consultants, most of us have been around talking to people during this time. What else can we do? How else can we add value? How else can we give back to people? What knowledge can we share? Mm. How can we do all that? As I said, it's all about collaboration connection for all of us to move through this time. And long term, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the long term people. Because not everybody is happily at home. Mm. Not everybody likes being away. Not everybody's being able to, to manage this. There is grief within this time. Mm-hmm. There's also possible loss as well. So you may have, particularly as elders have gone in this time, you may have lost your support structure as well. So it's kind of understanding that you may not be in the space to want to build your business because you're grieving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, long-term, people will need support with the change, the massive change of their, their whole life if there's loss in that way, not just the business, but, you know, actual human loss, people are going to need support. Mm. I love that. So, you know, if they are in a position where, you know, as you said, maybe they've never reached out before, maybe they've never asked for help before, maybe they've never thought about collaborating before, or maybe have thought, oh, can I reach out to that person? Then do, Mm. you know, just, you know, get brave, pick up the telephone, send that email or send that message, whatever that might be. As you said, you know, this is about us all stepping through, you know, us all getting through this time together, pulling each other through together um, and collaborating on that level. And then for those of us who can help, really reaching back and making sure that we are doing as much as possible to help people through this deep time of transition Mm -hmm. and a lot of grief and some trauma um, to at least find their way, you know, back back to some form of this new way of being, I'm not even going to say normality, but I think this, no. this, this new way of being, is, because it is a new way of being, we're, ha- we're going to have to learn how to navigate this space differently, I believe, as we move forward. Exactly. There's no yeah. new normal. You know, there's, it's just, it's having to adjust. And that's yeah. why this is the time I talk about resilience mm. and building that resilience so that you are adaptable mm. within the times. And it's not just now. We've got recession coming up. You know, it's, it's, we've got a lot happening yeah. right now and for the next you know, four or five years. Yeah. It's not like, you know, on the, on the 4th of July or whatever, when we've got other things opening and other things happening, that everything goes back. It, that will not be the case. No, no, I, I agree with that. Um, so what do you, do you have any workshops or programs coming up that people can sort of, you know, get in contact with you, plug into um, that you're, that you're running at the moment or are they coming oh, up? Yeah. I've got at the end of the month, I've got some self-care plan workshops coming up. So um, 90 minutes for you to kind of spend your time working through and creating a self-care plan. It's collaborative, interactive. So you'd be working with a group of like-minded women online. And um, have that space where you can just really be and kind of enjoy that space and look after you and come out of that with a kind of renewed commitment to looking after you Mm. and having tools to be able to do that. So that's um, something I'm doing. I've also got for those who have businesses um, and who want to look at how they can um, manage themselves and their stress and everything else, an online program that's available Mm. so people can access that. and yeah, I still do one-to-ones and talks and everything like that. So people can reach out and get in touch with me that way. Brilliant. Awesome. So if they do want to reach out and get in contact with you, where do they find you? Um, I'm on all social media platforms. <laughs> so I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, 
um, Twitter, and I've got a website. So if you just look for Yvette Ankra, A-N-K-R-A-H, and you'll find me. Beautiful. Excellent. Yvette, thank you so, so much for your time today. This has been incredible, incredibly informative, powerful, so many incredible messages, especially around self-care, looking after yourself, your own well-being, connecting, so many, so many juicy points in there. So thank you so much for your time today um, and look forward to speaking with you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Yvette Ankra, for an informative and enlightening discussion. And she is so right. We need each other to navigate this new normal. We need resilience, adaptability, and connection. Listening to Yvette talk about healing her body, she understands resilience firsthand. We must develop that mind-body connection to build that resilience that we need to face the grief and loss we feel, not only within ourselves, but also collectively. We need to become adaptable and inventive in these uncertain times. And we must find the courage to connect to each other in new but necessary ways. 2020 is a game-changing year, is it not? We have the power within us to create a world for the future, but we must recognize and heal the past. We have no idea what is around the corner, but together we can guide each other to a better and more unified existence. So join me next week with another special guest as we continue to engage with that force always working on our behalf. If you're ready to follow your nudge, but you're feeling a little bit stuck, go to my website, www.kiaailen.com, or my Instagram page, Kia Eileen underscore Soul Clarity, or my Facebook page at Kia Eileen. This podcast can be found on Spotify and iTunes, so please subscribe. And remember to follow the nudge, because you never know where it may lead.